The following podcast contains explicit language. We need to discuss think tank lunches. Greetings! Welcome to the second episode of The Weeds, Vox.com's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Woo! I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today, as usual, by my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Uh, we don't have a sponsor this week, but we do have a brand new email address for the show, weeds at vox.com, W-E-E-D-S at V-O-X dot com. You can drop us a line with any suggestions, corrections, observations, or whatever. It is amazing to me to hear Matt Iglesias telling people to email him. No, don't email me. Email the show <laughs> alias. Someone who's maybe not me will read and, and we'll see what happens. So I think we have some new innovations for episode two of The Weeds. I think we all felt like last week was fun, but we didn't quite hit our sort of spiritual mark. That there was we weren't too much, in the weeds enough. Yeah, there's too much speculating about presidential candidates. Yeah. We're not going to do that anymore. Nope. Number one is going to be whether single payer can actually work in America, even if it could get passed. Number two is going to be about gun control and what would it actually take to make America more like a European nation in terms of its gun deaths. And number three is going to be a, a new feature on our new podcast about our white paper of the week, the, the research paper we I'm found. so excited. It's really big, right? Uh, so, Sarah, you want to start us off on, on single payer? I, I do very much so, although I'm really excited. For the, <laughs> I'm excited for the white paper. It's a good white I paper. I mean, people it's are a gonna really like it. good. I'm sure I'm, we're saving it to the end so people actually listen to our podcast. Yeah. It's the cliffhanger, really. So I, I'm not I'm sadly not starting with the white paper, but I am standing with the starting with a number, a very important number to kick off our talk about single payer. And the number is eighty two thousand nine hundred and seventy five. And this number is really, really important to the debate over single payer in America because it is the amount that a 2011 health affairs study found that the average American doctor spends dealing with insurance companies. This is the money spent on, you know, those people in the back room or handling your bills. And, you know, this is important because the same health affairs studies, I'm sure you are all familiar with, they found that across the border in Ontario, Canada, the province where I had the privilege of growing up, doctors spend about a quarter of that amount dealing with the province's single-payer agency. They spend about $22,000 per year uh, on the same exact activities. And these figures are really at the heart of the case for a single-payer system, the numbers that advocates like to talk about, that American doctors spend all this money sending all these different bills to different insurers who get different prices for the exact same appendectomy. But Canadian doctors, they deal with just one insurer, the Canadian government, so they don't have to deal with all that mess. And this is you know, one of the reasons you hear people talk about why they think single payer would be good for the United States. And, you know, in my view, I've spent a decent amount of time covering about the subject. I have had firsthand knowledge as a young child growing up in Canada. And I think it's really good. The agenda is revealed. Yeah, exactly. So were, putting... were you just on like an endless waiting list? <laughs> like you got no medicine when you were no, sick? No, I actually, I, I, I have stories I can tell both in favor and against from personal anecdote. But there was one time where my mom actually had to be my dental assistant and she is not a dental assistant. So we can talk about that in the case against. Um, <laughs> that we'll get one to that time. Late, That one time, that one time in Canada. So I think single payer, and we'll talk about this, is really good at two things. One is increasing coverage rates, and two is holding down healthcare prices. And you know, getting people covered is unsurprisingly much easier when the government runs the healthcare system. I was looking at some stats about Taiwan, as one does, and they implemented single payer in 1995. 
their insured rate went from 53% to 96% in nine months. I mean, Obamacare has had like nowhere near that success. We've had it go up a few percentage points. So they're really good at increasing coverage. They're very good at holding down costs because they essentially tell doctors what they're going to pay and they cut out a lot of these administrative costs. Those are, I think, the big, you know, benefits. And I think when I think about worries about it, there's definitely valid concerns. And one, I think the biggest one that gets raised is innovation, that if you have this government that is regulating prices, they're saying this is what we're going to pay, you know, there's less incentive to make great drugs if you're going to get less money. And, you know, I think that's a trade-off and it's a fair trade-off to talk about. I want to actually question one of the benefits. I I am not convinced by the holding down cost for single payer and and not because it doesn't do it elsewhere. It really does Mm -hmm. do it elsewhere. I mean, the amount we spend is criminally insane given what we get and what every other, everybody else spends. One of my favorite healthcare stats, you know, this one, I think, Sarah, not you, the audience. I wish I could guess it. I bet you could, actually. Well, just start. I'll see if I can finish it. All right. America spends more on publicly provided health care. Oh, yeah. Then <laughs> Canada, yes, Japan, the UK, Sweden, Switzerland, and a couple others combined. Our public health care expenditures, our government health care expenditures, are way more than most other. So they're not combined. our public um, system only covers right. a fraction. And more then we there, spend they more spend than cover that everybody. on private. It's fucking crazy how much we spend. But we cannot go back in time to an age when the sort of American healthcare system was much smaller and start regulating prices and bargaining them down from there. And so one thing that I think sometimes people do when they make the argument for single payer is they'll look at us versus Canada or the UK or sort of any country that does um, sort of regulated pricing, which is mainly what people tend to mean when they talk about single payer, and say, well, wouldn't it be great if we were there? And to some degree, it would be great if we were there. But if we went there in a step or even over a couple of years, the American healthcare system, which has evolved to have this tremendous amount of spending under it, tons of rural hospitals would collapse. Tons of doctors would close sure. down. Like, I'm just not sure we can manage that transition. Well, so I don't I, know that we could yeah, do this as well as people think I don't think single-payer mandates that, though. Because I think – so you kind of have to accept, like, we have a really expensive healthcare system. Canada spends 11 percent of GDP. We spent 17 percent. Like, we're spending a lot more. Right. But – if we don't do something about it now, that disparity is just going to grow right. and grow. So what about a single payer system that starts with the prices we have, maybe lowers them like not to Canada levels, but like 10 percent, 5 percent? You're making an investment in the future. Right. I just think that's the art. I sure. agree with that. I think you can totally okay. do that. And right. I mean, Medicare does that to some degree now. Medicare spends less on right. per unit health care prices than uh, private insurers. And Medicaid even less. And Medicaid even less. I just think there's something in the single-payer argument that often gets glossed over, which is that I don't think we can jump from here to Canada. I don't think the the system could support that. I think that the cost case is very strong in terms of thinking about Mm -hmm. what the systems do well. I don't think people think through clearly like what the evolution of that would be. We couldn't get there in one step. But the proposals that exist tend to be trying to get all sort of prices down to Medicare levels. Mm. I mean, I don't think anyone is actually being quite so bold, at least even the most liberal members of Congress, Mm -hmm. as to say that we're going to start paying like French unit rates. They're generally saying, you know, either some form of Medicare should be expanded or there should be a public option whose prices are linked to Medicare. I mean, that's sort of the the baseline that people are driving at. And, you know, I mean, it would, I think, in the sort of most expensive parts of the United States create some kind of supply crunch, right? Because, I mean, one reason to be a doctor 
in a very high cost area is precisely that you know you can you can get that money from people and you might choose to go elsewhere where it's it's more lucrative um i i think that the financial argument is actually only sort of a small part of the case for it. I mean, I think a lot of people have a sort of baseline discomfort with the idea of healthcare being such a for-profit business and such an industry. And I know I, I last week, in fact, after recording the first episode of the show, wound up going to the emergency room with my baby and he's fine. And it turned out it wasn't that big a problem. But there's something really sort of alarming about showing up in an emergency room with a kid in your arms and he's got blood on his shirt and the first thing the hospital staff says to you is well I need to see your ID and his insurance card <laughs> and you know I and I knew this and was your kid is pretty young yeah I mean he is seven months old um, <laughs> but you know and so we always have this question right so the insurance card right now it's in my wallet as a result of what went down last week and really it probably shouldn't be in my wallet because I'm not with him right now it should be you know with his nanny when he's there so somehow passed around so Tattooed we could onto his <laughs> tiny foot right and cool. it's that's innovative <laughs> but so it's a that's a kind of strange thing and you know in the end of the day we have insurance somewhere halfway through it we'd been seen by like a triage nurse and we were waiting for the doctor to come and it wasn't a huge problem but it was way past his bedtime and he was kind of out of sorts and I'm bouncing him around and somebody comes over with a cart and she's trying to get my $50 copay from me and I'm saying you know we haven't even seen the doctor yet you know <laughs> maybe you should treat him before you charge us for it and you know I had the $50 I have insurance it wasn't really about the money but it was about the idea that you would like a sort of public service like emergency health care for infants to be treated like a public service and provided to people on the basis of objective need mm -hmm. rather than this kind of like shakedown. One of my favorite quotes, there's this great book that I'd recommend to all. Oh, God, I'm going to blink. I just said it's great. And I'm blinking on the title and the author. This is Sounds terrible. Podcast. It was maybe you might know this. We book. will put it in the show notes. We'll put it in the show notes. On Vox.com. It was a writer from the Washington. explain the news. <laughs> it was a writer from the Washington <laughs> Post. We went and traveled to seven different countries trying to get his shoulder treated. Oh, T.R. Reed's book. Yes. Um, That's how I forget the name of it's it. It's called The Health of Nations. It is, is the Health of Nations, right? Are you sure? Maybe. Anyways, yeah. So it's Tia Reed's book. I've also for written sure. an article called "The Health of Nations." So okay. Well, you know, maybe by the end. I'm of I'm gonna podcast. look. I have a phone. Oh, okay, we're well, gonna you find this out. out. But he, one of the things he says about he has this great quote. He goes to Canada. It's one of the countries he goes to. And he, I, I thought this quote, you know, as someone who is a dual citizen who lived in Canada for a while, his view of the Canadian healthcare system was, you know, we do have wait times. But we're okay with it because we all wait the same amount. And like that is kind of like where Canadians are at about their healthcare system. Do it have... is not called the health of nations. See, I knew that. Yeah, that's just my my work that Matt <laughs> was remembering called? so fondly. Lies. It's called The Healing of America. That's what it is. Yeah. So I highly recommend this book. But basically, you know, Canadians have accepted that they do have longer wait times. Like the data definitely shows that. They're okay with that because everyone waits the same amount. Can I push on this waiting time thing? Because it drives It's me... not related to single payer, but Canada does have I know they wait do, times. but it drives me fucking crazy, actually. Go for like, it. Okay. Canada does have high does have wait times for elective surgeries. Like there's no doubt about it. You can see it very clearly in the data. But if you look at that same data, you see something in America that you don't see elsewhere, where you ask people, did they not get yes. a surgery or did they not get a medication because of cost? And very high numbers of Americans compared to people in other countries say, yeah, I skipped out on doctor's appointments, on treatments, on medications. That is a wait time of infinity. 
Right. When you can't afford something, and right. so you just no, don't no, get and it. I, think that's the age, I just think yeah. the people who are saying, oh, Canada's got these high wait times, but I would prefer to wait four weeks for an elective surgery than never be able to get the surgery. Well, that's the idea of this quote, basically, yeah. that like, you know, we were okay with the wait times because everyone gets on the list. And here, like a lot of people don't even get on the list. Right. Like you're not even on the waiting list because you don't have money to pay for the thing that you need. Also, but, it's weird. Wait times are a weirdly Canadian UK thing. They like really John are. Cohen has a good piece on this yeah. um, where he's talking about how like, we, because Canada is really nearby mm-hmm. and the UK speaks English, we like really look at their systems very closely. Like Germany and France and Japan yeah. just don't have big waiting. Line no. It's just like, that's just about how much you're spending. It's not really a proxy of single payer. Yeah. But, I, but I think Sarah's point about equality is an important yeah. one in terms of the case both for and the case against, right? That it's easy to sort of get into these questions and say, well, what kind of healthcare system is best? Well, you just want it to work. You want it to make there be health, right? But healthcare is quite expensive. And so there's just important economic implications of different systems. One thing that's appealing about Canada's system to Canadians Mm -hmm. is that it's a real economic leveling force. Uh, In the United States, one thing that's unappealing about that system to many people is that it would be a real leveling force, right? I mean, the American system works great for the people who it works really well for, and they don't want it to change because that would be like a big Well, this is, yeah. I want to push this conversation like a little bit more into the weeds though because I think we're kind of restating the argument for single payer, which is good. But like, what if we actually tried to do it here? Like, I think it's a really interesting question. Like, if we attempted to make this work here now, if Bernie Sanders got elected and like Democrats filled Congress and like he passed it, and like you've done a lot of work on this, they're actually looking at Vermont, where where Sanders was. Like, do you think that we could do it? Well, I guess, like, for this premise, this world that we're living in, Sanders land that we now live in. We've passed HR 676. (laughs) Okay. Could could the healthcare system literally transition? It has the money it needs to do it. Yeah. I think so. I mean, you've seen modern economies do this. Taiwan created a single-payer system in 1995. I think it'd be incredibly disruptive and very upsetting to the, what is it, like 150 million Americans who get insurance at work? If you thought like Obamacare was disruptive, like this would be oh, like yeah. just widespread. Nobody keeps the health insurance yeah, so, they like Right, much. if you like your insurance, you <laughs> definitely cannot keep it. So I think like logistically, yeah, we could do it, but it would be like a huge clusterfuck and people would be very upset about it. But so, because I think this is really interesting, right? So Uwe Reinhardt is a, um, so far as health economics has rock stars, oh, yeah. Uwe Reinhardt is like- oh, for sure. Bon Jovi of healthcare economics. Uh, he's got this great accent. He's really funny when he talks. Um, you should, if you get a chance to go to a healthcare convention and see Uwe Reinhardt give a presentation, I highly recommend yes. it. He told me once that he is a single payer supporter, but he doesn't think it could work in America because he thinks the American system of government is too corrupt, that it's too bought out oh, by right. money, that big interests have too much power Dutch, in right? it. But I thought we're I assuming we've passed this at that point. But where does, where would, does it come well, in? Well, I don't know then. exactly. We should have him here to, to but I think that the way I interpreted that, and I don't, I'm, I'm now giving my spin on what he said, right. is that one of the arguments conservatives make about Medicare, particularly, is while it is cheaper in a lot of ways, it is also very vulnerable to lobbying because you'll have this or that industry go before Congress and say the particular treatment or thing we do is really important and we're going to ensure all of your reelection in order to make sure it's covered at a very, very high rate. So like in a world where this happens, you would have like the pharmaceutical industry, the all the, the sort of device industries mm-hmm. turning like full firepower on Congress, trying to get very high reimbursement rates. And I mean, you look at Obamacare where the pharmaceutical industry was able to get Congress, even as it passed Obamacare, to not and Obama agreed to not 
allow Obamacare to sort of join with Medicare to negotiate I mean, down I think drug what prices. You need in this, so that's a place where well, maybe this, you wouldn't like, get these savings. Law, I don't think, and I don't think this is the way most single payer countries run, where the legislature sets the prices. You kind of cast it off to some non-elected. Like, you know, it's basically IPAB or whoever setting these prices. That's the death panel. The death panel. Yes, the right. death panel becomes no, we, the prices wait, panel. IPAD, was I, iPad wasn't the death panel, was it? It was Sarah Palin's death panel. Oh, I thought... There have been two things that have oh, been... Oh, right, yeah. There's, there's the, two different okay, versions of right. death panels. Okay. You yeah. can, but IPAB yeah. is the cool death panel. <laughs> the they, other say, they say which treatments just no one's allowed to get because it's too Yeah, but they haven't even expensive. called to action because... But so, anyways... anyways yeah, I guess yeah. We're, we're, get, we're getting too deep but in I'm the weeds, saying, guys. <laughs> we haven't even defined what iPad is. Okay, the point is, you would have to have some kind of committee. Yes, right? non-elected, like faceless government bureaucrats is what you like, right? Yeah, and like I, that's like what nice this is, is in this the is UK. What I'm, this is what I'm pushing on a little bit. Like we've watched Obamacare, which is, uh, as you said, sir, like way less disruptive than single payer, come into play, and it has been, I think politically like a, just an unbelievable clusterfuck like because even if you imagine like let's say you imagine that bernie sanders gets his big majority sparks right. his political revolution they jam hr 676 through so you now have this kind of like medicare for all thing coming into play republicans are going to have a lot of governorships there's going to be you know different things happening in different states different legislatures and like i think we've really seen like it is very hard to effectively roll out big health care changes right. when you have a country so politically divided and with such deep mistrust of government. Yeah, I agree yeah. it's more disruptive. But the thing that's easier about single payer than Obamacare is, you know, Obamacare, you have to set up these like marketplaces that didn't work. You have to like get people to shop for insurance. Here, like when they created Medicare, you like literally go and hand out cards yeah. to people. So that's like a little I just imagine, easier. I mean, I guess the reason I'm, I'm pushing on this is it because I just think it is an interesting way of thinking about what is politically possible here, right? Yeah. Like. We did Medicare. I think sort of the best argument for that we could do single payer is we did Medicare and we did Medicaid. And it worked. And you did have doctors threatening to go on strike. Right. You did have Ronald Reagan, um, who is not, you know, who is years away from becoming president, recording records to talk about how this would right. be the death of freedom in America. Like we did overcome that. And so my gut is that, you know, if you were able to have the support to do it for a minute, right. you actually probably could get there. But I think it would be really hard. I, I do wonder about that transition. Well, I, and I think the part where it fell apart, just because this is where it fell. So Vermont tried to do single yeah. payer, and where it fell apart in Vermont was when they got to how much revenue you'd have to raise. And this kind of gets to back to the redistribution stuff we were talking about earlier. So they found they would need to raise two point five billion in revenue per year to pay for it, and um, that's even though it reduces even though costs. it reduces costs. But it's basically so you have to get the money. So the, and the way you're getting that money, they figured, would be um, an 11.5 percent payroll tax increase and a 9 percent income tax increase. So all these people who are currently getting tax preferenced insurance are getting totally screwed over with higher taxes, whereas low income people are getting, you know, this great benefit. This is a huge point, I think, that right now the system in a very weird way subsidizes rich people and screws over poor people, right? right? Because you have single payer with deduction that. and single payer. And so that. obviously rich people dislike that. this. This speaks to another way of putting, I think, that Vermont point is I don't know if people saw. I know you did, Matt, because you wrote about it. The Wall Street Journal a couple weeks ago now had this piece about how much does Bernie Sanders want to spend? And they're like, mm -hmm. it's $18 trillion. But $15 trillion of that was an estimate of a single payer system. Mm -hmm. um, not even really his, but just sort of like another one floating around Congress. And that money is not like new money. In theory, that money might be less it's than less. people are we spending spend on like, health insurance yeah, now. I think $17 trillion right now. But the act of moving 
this sort of very Rube Goldberg financing system we have now where your employer is paying for health insurance and you don't even know how much they're paying to all of a sudden it is coming out of your taxes and you are looking at the bill and it is going to the government in a country that is pretty anti-tax and pretty anti-government that is right. going to be a hell of and a like if it didn't shock. work in vermont like you know <laughs> it's just, so i even like you know we have the hypothetical like let's say it passes i don't think it ever gets passed that hurdle unless like some state is able, like state like vermont is able to do it and right. I, I think you know when you talk about taiwan right because that's the best example mm. of sort of big bang transition here. And I do think that the crucial thing about that, even though 1995 was pretty recently, Taiwan was an advanced, complicated economy by then, their insurance rate was, you said, it was something like 50%, right? So the uninsured in Taiwan at that time were not a small element of social concern, right? It was it was a huge one. And I think you see this over and over again in the United States when it comes to public services, right? That if you didn't have a 93% car ownership rate. There would be a lot of people interested in making mass transit systems better. Mm-hmm. But we have 93%, right? So the, the 7%, that's a real problem. We might worry about them. And it's the same with health insurance. For all the problems with the current system, the vast majority of people have insurance already. And so when the Obama administration wanted to help the people who didn't have insurance, they, for very understandable reasons, put a high premium on doing as little as possible to disrupt people who already had it. In Taiwan, and you know, they were probably close to a threshold, right? Mm-hmm. If their insurance rate had gone up 10 or 15 percentage points, you might not have been able mm-hmm. to transform the system. But there were enough uninsured people that you could make a case for blowing it up. And even as much as the Obama administration tried not to affect like ongoing insurance arrangements, they ended up canceling some right. pretty small number, frankly, of insurance plans. And like we saw what a shit show that was, right? right? Like like my criticism of Obamacare, like I went back and looked at this, like when it was going through Congress, they don't do enough to change existing insurance. Like they are just too scared of disrupting the existing market. As scared as they were, I think in retrospect, they feel they probably weren't scared enough or certainly yeah. Democrats feel that way. And so just like the idea of going from like a tiny percent, couple percentage points to like everybody, I think just... Uh, I, it, it's very hard to imagine. But that, I think, gets to like how it might actually happen or if not exactly happen, how we would get closer there. I, like, think, I think it's happening in Maryland. I think that's the path to single payer runs through Maryland. Go and for it. I will tell you why. So Maryland is one of my favorite states because they do something. <laughs> for entirely health for policy entire, oriented reasons. Just for, you yeah. like the crabs. <laughs> well, I just started eating fish. I've been a vegetarian for 15 years, so I should go try some crabs. A there. crab is actually not a fish. Okay, fine. Anyways. Um, so Maryland <laughs> does this thing in their hospitals <laughs> called all-payer rate setting. And all-payer rate setting... It basically, I think you guys would agree, it has the same advantages as single payer where you still have different insurance companies. You have the government, Medicare, Medicaid, you know, Cigna, Aetna, who have you, but they all agree on the same price for each procedure. So each appendectomy costs like $5,000 instead of wild variation. And they've actually seen a lot of success. There have been some kind of trouble points lately. But in general, they've had much slower hospital right, like cost a, growth. It's like a healthcare price bargaining cartel. Yes. Basically. Yes, basically. So all the insurers <laughs> and all the hospitals negotiate together and they say, okay, this is how much it costs to replace a hip in Maryland. Right now, the way it happens in every other state is just like completely bananas where each insurer goes to each hospital and like no one knows what anyone else is charging. There's a great study about California about um, 
blood tests can cost anywhere from a hundred to ten thousand dollars, depending on how good the insurer is at negotiating. One of the things with that too is like insurers, I just think, are a lot less powerful than people think. Mm-hmm. That one of the real lessons insurers took from the '90s when they did hold down healthcare costs through HMOs, but then like they became like everybody's most hated enemy, was that. The American people do not actually want them to hold down healthcare prices. No, Certainly yeah. not by saying no to right. treatments. Right, so it's like or, you get very yeah. angry at your insurer when they're like, "That doctor isn't in your network," yeah. and that's how they, you know, so they basically are a little bit held hostage by yeah. doctors who say, "Okay, we want to charge, you know, ten thousand dollars for an appendectomy." Well, if you're some like brand name hospital, yeah. you can kind of just demand those prices. Yeah, so it is Mar- way more profitable to be a so, drug company than an insurer. Yes, um, that's probably another. But that should, is another yes. actual advantage, though, of a of a single payer as opposed to a regulated system of multiple payers is that everyone has to take the government's insurance, every provider. But why would you reject one of them in this like all payer scenario? Who knows? They're giving you bribes. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, how does it work in Maryland? Does every insurance company cover every doctor? But I I would pull back on this and say one thing that I think. So I think all payer rate settings, one way you could get some of the advantages of single payer without as much transition in the system. But another way I do think that we could see over time is we're seeing a huge expansion of Medicaid under Obamacare. Mm -hmm. It's not in all states yet, but it is. I think it's going to be there in, you know, five or 10 years Mm -hmm. uh, or near to there anyway. And Medicare is obviously, particularly as a baby boomer's age, like it's a ton of the population is covered by Medicare. You've got the VA system, the Army system. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the future, Democrats bring back a public option concept. Mm-hmm. And you could definitely imagine, you know, maybe somebody Medicare goes down to yeah. 60 years old. And you could just sort of see attrition, like going well, through the market the a little bit. Well, and with the exchanges, you just see the government financing a bigger and bigger chunk of health care. Yeah. So as it's like more of their dollars paying for it, they presumably have more space to control. And so I just think we might end up over time, like the way we get closer and closer and closer to single payer, it's not that we ever really get there. And I think to some degree, we never actually get the major advantages of it in terms of equity and other things. But we do have a lot of different sort of government payers eventually maybe banding together with private payers and creating a sort of Rube Goldberg style, much more government driven system. I feel like it has to be more regulated, like Maryland. I don't see it happening from like the ground up, there's very little incentive for them. Oh, like, I think it in- would be. Have oh, to be okay. More so it'd be like an that. all payer. Yeah, but system of but some I think that sort. like you know, if Medicare expanded and if you eventually got a public option that was connected to Medicare pricing, mm-hmm. and then you have Medicaid, which is doing sort of its own bargaining, and you know, is big. And enough then the to- exchanges could have right. their own price mandates. Yeah. and I don't think it would all be one, but mm-hmm. I think you could imagine a set of them that either are all banded together under all payer rate setting, but it'll never, I don't think it'll ever get to single payer, but I do think the system is going to evolve towards more insurance side consolidation and, and under government insurers heavily as well. I, I just think yes. that government insurance for different reasons right now is just becoming like a much bigger part of the system than, than people mm-hmm. realize. I agree. <laughs> Matt just made, uh, I think, in order to end the segment, he made a gun motion at me with his hand yeah. and then fired. Because we were supposed to talk about guns. We can still talk about guns. We're not. It's after, not after, Ezra, after Ezra takes everyone's health insurance away, I was arguing of, that we can't go and just take everybody's health care insurance away. Okay. Wasn't I? That's right. I will take everyone's insurance away. I'm going to take everybody's take guns. guns. Okay. Because go the difference yeah. is, is that you know, sick people don't don't shoot back. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I want to, uh, as Sarah did, begin this with a couple of numbers that I think are helpful here. 
Obama came out in what is becoming this really sad ritual of his presidency after the shooting, that the, the recent shooting. And he gave another of these speeches where he basically says, we are the only developed country that tolerates any level of gun violence, even in this neighborhood. And nothing is going to happen about it. But he said, you know, we should. We have bills that are there. We have ways we could address this. We could make things better. But I, I think actually people underestimate how far apart we are from other countries. So just a couple numbers here. America has six times as many firearm homicides as Canada, and we have 15 times as many as Germany. This number, I think, is just mind-blowing. We have 4.4% of the world's population, but almost half of the world's civilian-owned guns. We've had in this country over a thousand or about a thousand mass shootings since Sandy Hook, which Sandy Hook was only in 2012. That's pretty fucked up, I think. If you, the Washington Post has been producing this calendar showing there's been a mass shooting almost every day in America in 2015. And because some mass shootings happen uh, more than one in a day, we actually have had more mass shootings than we have had days, which is, again, really incredibly depressing. I'm doing this one a little bit from memory now, but I think that we have roughly 33,000 gun deaths of all kinds. And if you took the UK's gun death rate and put it in a country of our size, they're around 750. So, I mean, these are a lot of lives we're talking about. But one thing that I think has been a little bit lost in the gun conversation is the really fundamental reason we have this quantity of gun death is because we have so many guns. And when Obama gets up there and he says, look, the we could do something here. We do not need to let it be this way. What he is proposing, what Democrats are proposing, is so far out of the neighborhood of what would get us towards the kind of gun ownership levels of a UK or a Germany that, you know, background checks, I think they're a good idea. There's licensing, which would be a good idea. There's a lot of stuff that is on the board there. Closing the gun show loophole would be a good idea. But in terms of really trying to get us down to sort of European gun violence levels, I think it's like worth being clear that Neither party in this country is anywhere near talking about anything that we would see. I mean, even the kind of gun confiscation you saw in Australia was only 20 percent of that country's guns and only a particular kind of gun. And we have really a lot of guns laying around at this point. Right. So it's a little bit of a hopeless point to make. But I also think it's important for people to like, be honest about the scale of the problem and not pretend that if we just put background checks into place, we would suddenly become Germany or the UK or even Canada. Well, but I, And I also think that's important to understanding the politics, because I mean, I know one thing that I, I hear from liberals all the time, sort of people banging their heads against the wall. And they're like, look, the measures we're proposing are like so modest. It's such common sense. How come the NRA is so unreasonable that they won't do it? The gun people are not only more emotionally invested in the issue, but they are much more knowledgeable. And more armed. A, more armed, yes. <laughs> but they, they know more about guns, right? I mean, the NRA is really smart about the gun issue. They are very familiar with all these topics. And gun owners know a lot more about guns than liberals in their sort of disarmed uh, urban enclaves. And they are aware that the things liberals are proposing to do will not accomplish the things that liberals want to accomplish. And that 
if liberals win a handful of victories around background checks, registry, things like that, that these sorts of gun violence that upset liberals are going to keep happening and people are going to keep coming back for more bites at the apple. And that's one of the reasons that the topic is so polarized, right? The people who own the guns, they want to continue owning guns and they recognize that for liberals to do what they want, they're going to have to, you know, get rid of them or, or take them away somehow. And they don't want to do that in just the way that you know, anybody would. And there's a sense that you're going to have necessarily to implement this vision, you're going to have law-abiding people who are not doing anything wrong, who have never gone on a spree killing, who've never sold a gun to an urban gang member, are going to have to give something up in order to sort of protect people from, from these kind of problems. And that's a tough sell in other kinds of contexts, right? I mean, the same people who tend to favor tighter gun regulations are exactly the people who tend to support civil liberties and other kinds of contexts who would tell you that racial profiling is morally wrong, even if it's effective. And gun owners feel that it's the same kind of situation for them, that if I'm not doing anything wrong, I should not be penalized, even if it would help solve some kind of social problem. That is one of the things that I think is very, very true in the gun debate. The NRA's argument that any kind of gun control is a slippery slope, I think is actually a pretty good argument. Now, I do think that it is a totally plausible thing to say that given how difficult it is to pass anything like background checks, if you did manage to do so, you would not all of a sudden be able to pass mass gun confiscation. But I do think that when the NRA looks in the hearts of its opponents, what they see are people who wish no one who was not in law enforcement and the military was allowed to own a gun. And when you mistrust the motives of your regulators quite that much, I think it becomes clear why you fight that so incredibly, incredibly hard. You know, I, I do want to say on the other side of this that it is a lot of lives in the balance here. You said a couple of minutes ago, Matt, that you have all these law-abiding gun owners who've never gone on a spree killing. Something that our, our colleague Dylan Matthews has been really pushing and really making the point of recently is that the really big gun problem in America is suicide. That is the majority of gun deaths, and that is actually preventable. When you try to kill yourself with pills or hanging yourself or all kinds of different ways, it usually doesn't work. And then somebody finds you and puts you in treatment, and you do not kill yourself in the future. When you try to kill yourself with a gun, you usually succeed. And so it, it really isn't the case, not that gun owners care about me saying this, but it really isn't the case that the fact that you are not a spree killer mm -hmm. protects you from your gun actually becoming a deadly weapon in your home, your toddler accidentally shooting someone, which happened, I think, this week, your son becoming really depressed during his teenage years and finding the gun and killing himself with it. Like, this is where a lot of these deaths come from. And they're not what we talk about when we're talking about spree killings. And so because the focus and the attention tends to come from these sort of huge mass slaughters where everybody agrees a perpetrator is just an insane, murderous criminal, it does have this effect of the gun owner saying, well, why me? Like, I'm not doing anything wrong. But part of the point here is that, like, the gun is really dangerous in your house, too. Right. And if you were to frame it a little bit differently, like if there was some disease we knew how to cure that was killing thousands of people each year and, you know, we knew exactly how to fix it. We knew what steps we needed to take. I mean, chances are we'd say, like, yeah, we should probably, like, take those steps and, like, give people those pills. And that's pretty, like, pretty close to what is happening with guns and suicides, with this, you know, I think Dylan's writing on this is really worth reading and has changed how I think 
about the issue, you know, the issue you mentioned that guns are so effective and that you could save so many lives. Can, oh. can I give one stat yeah. on this, by the way? Um, I'm just looking at a chart from Dylan. And in 1999, you had about, it looks like 16-ish thousand gun suicides and about 11,000 gun homicides a year. Mm-hmm. And right now you have uh, coming up above 20,000 gun suicides and gun homicides are still around 10, 11,000. Yeah. So you're actually seeing an increasing number of gun right. suicides. Right. So when like we, it's a really big right, problem. It's right. really preventable by so not having a gun. So when you're looking at that 30,000 or so yeah. deaths from guns, the majority of the problem is suicides. That's not what we cover as much right. as the media. And what's crazy is it's actually more preventable. Do you, mm-hmm. know, do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like yeah, it, totally. it is easier to prevent someone who in the moment would choose to kill themselves. But again, there's really good research on this. If prevented from doing so in the moment, they really often will not reoccur. It's the old mm-hmm. line that suicide is a, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. What will stop them is not having the gun where somebody who is a deranged psychopathic killer, then when people say like, well, maybe they'll start knifing people left and right mm-hmm. or they'll work really hard to get a gun on the black market. Those things are actually, I think, more true. It's a better argument. Than, but also the yeah. point is, though, to prevent gun-related suicides, you really do need to confiscate all the guns. Yeah. I mean, or you could confiscate half of them and cut it in half, right? But you, the kinds of proposals that Democrats are comfortable running right. on are not aimed at making it impossible for law-abiding people to have a gun in their closet. You know, an, an analogy that sort of has come to me lately uh, is that I, I read Daniel Okren's book about prohibition, uh, alcohol oh, is that prohibition good? I wanted in, to in read the that. 20s. I, I like it a lot. It's, it's a great book. And one of the interesting things he talks about there, I, I think a lot of us have this kind of idea in our heads that prohibition was just this huge failure, that it in some sense, quote unquote, didn't work. And there's actually a lot of evidence that it really did improve public health, that alcohol is, is bad for you. It's associated with a lot of sort of domestic violence, crime, things like that. And as spotty and sort of bad as the enforcement was, you know, what we all know about bootleggers and whatnot, it worked. People drank less booze and there were positive public health impacts of that. But also mixed up in the whole politics of prohibition was a sense on the part of sort of waspy Americans was that they didn't like primarily Catholics and and them drinking so much. And there was also a sense among Catholics and Jews that the policy was disrespecting them and disrespecting their culture, which involves, you know, the use of alcoholic beverages as part of religious rituals. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, there were exceptions. The First Amendment was a thing. So there was rules about Mm -hmm. pastoral use. But then that became a loophole that people tried to exploit. And on some level, there was just a social disagreement that primarily pitted Catholics and Jews against primarily evangelical Protestants around the question of, is recreational drinking a valuable thing for society that we should worry about taking away people's right to do that, even if it has public health benefits, versus people who said, look, drinking to excess is a huge problem. Getting really drunk and murdering your wife is a huge problem. But just getting like a little drunk and acting kind of sloppy that's not great either. You know, in a godly life, you just would abstain. And I think you see something of that with guns, right? Lots of people, the vast majority of the people I know, they don't own any guns. They never owned any guns. They don't shoot guns. They think their life is great. And if they imagined a society in which there were no guns, it's not just that there's benefits in terms of the loss of suicides, but there's no cost, right? right? Whereas to other people, my wife grew up on a ranch in Texas. She got her first gun, I think, when she was 11. Mm -hmm. It's an important part of 
culture and identity. There's a hobby that people enjoy, and there's something thoughtless about just sort of brushing that aside and saying, eh, who cares? We should just take everybody's guns away. And I think we have these kind of dilemmas, particularly when you start talking about suicide, right? When you're talking about quote-unquote victimless sort of issues that, in fact, do have victims and where the harm is often self-inflicted. And, you know, should we ban gambling? Should we ban gun ownership? Should we ban alcohol consumption? Should we ban heroin? And there's a, a complicated set of things, right? Like, what sorts of fun do we think are legitimate? And, and what do we care about? And whose identities do we care about? And I think that's sort of missing in a lot of the liberal mm-hmm. internal discussion of guns. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the really sad things about politics. It, it just, the rhetoric of politics just does not leave a lot of room for trade-offs. The, the way people talk about political issues, uh, the way people write about them, the way people discuss them, because people are trying to get a point across or because they're trying to win adoption of a policy, there's not very much nuance, right? People don't say, look, uh, this policy I think is 60% good and 40% bad. Uh, I've tried to do that a couple of times and I've had such unbelievable blowback from people being like, no, like you can't right. support a law that you don't think is totally fucking awesome in every particular. What if you talk to any smart person about any policy, they'll like immediately say, well, it wasn't my perfect policy. Right, yeah, like, and then after, you know, right. When, when you're not in, in selling yes. mode, yeah. Uh, but but it, it is a funny thing. I think that's right in that. I, I do think that that particular kind of thing is something we have a lot of trouble discussing, right? We have a lot of trouble with the question of valuing life. I think correctly. But Sarah, you know, in healthcare literature, you'll have a lot of talk about like quality adjusted life years. Like there is a whole literature about how much is a year of human life worth. But then like when you get into policy, like you get into something where people are very uncomfortable ever saying clearly it is worth someone dying to have this happen. It is worth Mm -hmm. we will accept it in a status quo way. It is worth a lot of people dying for us to have cars. But if you had to pass a law that actually said, like, we're okay with people dying so people could have more fun racing cars or something, mm-hmm. you would not be able to do it. That is a real – and, you know, this goes a little bit to – we were joking about death panels earlier, but this goes in into the sort of healthcare death panel question mm-hmm. where we just have a lot of trouble saying this is what a human life is worth. This is what the cost is. This is what the benefit of a policy is. And that's what we're going to do. I'm not saying we shouldn't have trouble saying that. I, I am just saying, though, that it creates a kind of – We pay a very large premium in a lot of areas of public policy to not make decisions about life and death. We pay a very large premium to not have to say, what do we think it is worth to give grandma another year of life? We pay a lot, a very large premium to not have to say, what is it worth to be able to have fun with guns? And so what ends up happening is the status quo is very, very, very powerful in those places because it's just very hard even to have that conversation in a way people can feel is honest and people feel respected by, but are not scared off from even the the prospect of trying to make those decisions. And and the stuff we're able to do, it then ends up quite small. I thought there was a great, you know, circling back to where we started about how, you know, things we're talking about really aren't going to fix the problem. There's a great New York Times, I don't know if it was in the paper, it was definitely online piece earlier this week that looked at how they got their guns. And the point was there were all these, you know, there were different, they all got them legally is the upshot of it. That was the only tweak I would have made as an editor. As I would say, they all got their guns legally because that's kind of like the takeaway. And, and it was good at proving the point that, you know, there are states that have passed these regulations, like Oregon, for example, like does have regulations around guns. It's a pretty liberal state. And, you know, they they didn't work. They they all got their guns legally through these systems. And it kind of speaks to the real step that needs to happen. The step, you know, politicians probably aren't going to talk about is just 
confiscating the guns. And that, you know, I, I think it's worth checking out anyone who's interested in this further. Even these background check ideas that, like you said, people are so, oh, how could you not support that? That's the exact reason why, you know, they're not fixing the problem. But this is where, you know to, what you really to get a little, a little <laughs> weedsy, though, I, I do think that there is a useful middle ground between there's the very rare instances of spree killers, which are actually hard to prevent precisely because it's rare. It's not a lot of people doing it. It's never the guy's second spree killing. You know, there are things that can be done with right. background checks to cut down on it, mm-hmm. but it's hard, short of confiscating all guns, to prevent one-off weird sprees. Then there's also suicides, which, again, is very hard to prevent unless you just don't have any guns around. But you do have the middle ground, right, which is ordinary crime, disputes among drug dealers, turn more deadly when they're conducted with guns than with bats. People trying to rob you at night is more deadly when it's with a gun rather than with a bat. So if you look at the U.S. versus Europe, right, very similar rates of robbery, very similar rates of assault, very similar rates of most kinds of crimes, but we have much more murder in the United States. And that's because assaulting someone with a gun is way, way, way more likely to kill them. And it does seem to me that some of this stuff around private gun sales and the lack of sort of background checks that happen there, ability to trace guns better, basically things that would help police officers solve crimes and things that would reduce the incentives to be carrying a gun as a criminal and to be sort of using firearms as tools of the trade really are things that we could do. Since such a high share to get a really great chart of gun violence deaths in the United States, you need to throw suicides into the bucket. But you can still get a pretty good chart of just (laughs) the difference in murder rates versus the difference in assault rates. Mm -hmm. And it does seem to me that you could narrow that gap with measures that should be acceptable to sort of hobbyist gun owners if they were confident that the point of the registry wasn't to come back next year and take everyone's guns away. But they will not be confident of that. No, 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 they won't. Speaking of things we can't be confident in, (laughs) Matt, do you want to talk about our white paper of the week? Yes. For one thing, I don't think this is quite what a white paper is. It isn't. A white paper is sort of a policy proposal. This is more of academic research. This is an NBER paper, I believe. It is. It's it's an amazing, it's a fascinating, and it's somewhat depressing. And it comes from uh, Michael Baker, Jonathan Gruber, and Kevin Milligan. Jonathan Jonathan Gruber, Gruber. back in the game. Yes, it is that Jonathan Gruber. And he's, I think, trying to rebuild his cred by pouring some cold water on an idea that liberals would like. And so this is that the province of Quebec in Canada, it established a universal daycare program. And it said that all parents in the province could get daycare for their kids for $5 a day. This was in 1997. It's up to $7 a day now, but it's, it's Canadian dollars. So it's basically monopoly It's probably money. like four. Um, anyway, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really cheap. If, if you have a baby, as I do, you know that that is much, much, much cheaper than what you can get. And it was even cheaper than that for low-income families. So it was like a really good benefit. Really sort of solid stuff. And you've probably heard, if you're the kind of person who would listen to this podcast, you've probably heard liberals talking about the Perry Pew. If anyone is still at this point listening to this podcast. No, this was our cliffhanger. This was our big reveal. So you've probably heard people talking about these enormous benefits that the best preschool programs have. And they're real good studies. This is basically looking at the opposite of that. What if instead of having a small experiment with the best people making the best preschool program, what if we had a giant experiment where thousands 
thousands of kids suddenly enrolled in new daycare programs. And what they show is that it did not work out really well. They compared sort of trends in child well-being in Quebec to the rest of Canada. And they showed that self-reported health and life satisfaction uh, went down in Quebec. And they showed a big increase in criminal behavior among teenagers. Basically, all the things that you find in the good studies going up we're going down instead in Quebec. I'm really glad I grew up in Ontario then. Yeah. Like this, I do think it's important it. to say as like a sort of framing point here that this comes in context. And you've kind of implied this a few times here. There are all these studies have been pushed very heavily by economists like James Heckman of smaller preschool programs that show tremendous crazy benefits. Right. So right. like when Obama goes up or when all, you know, any politician goes up and talks about universal pre-K, they rely on these studies that show it's like this unbelievably great investment. And then you get this study. Sorry. Right. And and so on one level, this is a study that contradicts those studies because those say these programs are good and this says they had a bad program. On another level, the studies are all saying the same thing, which is that there's big effects on children's non-cognitive skills that has to do with the environment that they're exposed to in their early education. And you would expect, right, if that's true... It's possible to have interventions that go up, and it's possible to have interventions that go down. And what they had in Quebec, they had defined this set of high-quality programs, and they were hoping to expand the number of kids in high-quality programs. And they did that. The number of slots available, it, it went up by over a factor of three, but there was just even more demand than that to get in. And part of what's sort of scary about this is that the program basically achieved all of its objectives. They wanted women's labor force participation to go up, and it did. It went up enough that the fiscal effect of these huge subsidies was largely neutralized, right? So so that's really good, right? That's a big win. They really did triple the number of high-quality programs, but tripling wasn't enough. There were a few different iterations of the regulation, but they had people in for-profit centers that they'd initially meant to close, and they had a lot of people in sort of home-based care where there's very little regulation. You're sort of dropping it off at some lady's house, and, and he's taking care of your kid. And it just turns out that the quality of child care providing these programs is below the quality of childcare that middle-class families were organizing for themselves. We normally talk in America about very targeted interventions at the lowest-income households who sort of have the most problems and potential disruption in home life. But Canada was making a benefit, you know, for everybody. Uh, And that meant you were reaching people where there's actually a pretty high bar for social services to be better than what parents could organize for themselves. And, And they did worse. I think this study is, like, unbelievably fascinating. I mean, I think we've known a little Mm -hmm. bit before that not super high-quality preschool does not have these huge effects. But it is a really powerful reminder that it is hard to scale this It's also a really depressing study. (laughs) Like, not only, like, you know, it'd be sad if, you know, it didn't have any effect. But these kids were harmed by the program. Like, that's, like, really upsetting, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like like they they screwed up like more like you know you had one job and like you like But I, I think what's interesting about it, it it speaks I think really clearly to this question of what are you targeting and what are you right. measuring? Yes. Because in that 
read that, that you just gave when you sort of went through the different things that the, the program actually did, you could have stopped like a mm-hmm. couple, like a minute before the end. And you just like, if that was what the paper said, like, my God, Quebec's preschool program did amazing. Like you got women's labor force participation up, all these things happened. And then paid, you, like, yeah, the fiscal effects were amazing. Yeah, like, phenomenal. Like, and you can imagine a study that didn't take that final step of really tracking these kids. Right. Well, there, you, there's plenty of studies like that. There are plenty that. of studies like that. And so like you would have said like, this is really an amazing program. Like it pays for itself. But like what you are actually trying to target here is the outcomes for the children. And I mean, or you could argue maybe you were really right. trying to target women's labor force I think participation. If you, were, you, know, like, if, if, if you found, you know, labor force participation went up, things for kids were neutral, you'd be like, eh, well, like it accomplished something. But like now you're saying it's like a trade off between labor right. force participation but and kids' well being. So, yeah, I mean, it's a sobering warning about the preschool question but also a good reminder of how important it is to like know what it is you are measuring well and i think <laughs> this is where it's actually most important for the united states because i have never heard anyone in, in the u.s propose a program that had this kind of structure nobody seems to want to provide subsidies for middle class families on this kind of scale just because the, the cost would be very high But we do talk a lot about finding different ways to push poor people and particularly low-income mothers into the workforce, right? This was the big goal of welfare reform, which even though it was a a very different program from this Canadian program, it had the same structure where what people said was, okay, we have these people, they're getting these checks from the government, their lives are pretty crummy. And people are upset that they're not working. And so what we need to do is instead spend money on EITC, which sort of subsidizes their pay. The earned income tax credit. Indeed. Create some low-quality child care programs that will be accessible to low-income women and measure our success based on our ability to get people to go into the workforce. And as far as I know, no one is really tracking the impacts on children of that kind of thing. Yeah. And we see more and more rhetoric of that, right? The big idea from um, the Republican Party coming now to the extent that there are ideas about helping poor people is about efforts to increase labor force participation. We had a piece about people living on less than $2 a day in the United States, which is what happens when you don't have sort of long-term cash welfare. And even the authors of that book were saying, well, you know, there's no way to bring this back. You know, everything has to be sort of channeled through work. But it's a reminder that there's a cost to having people, particularly to having parents, be particularly doing full-time work. It's really challenging to organize a daycare system that is going to work for everybody and that is going to be affordable to the lowest wage workers and that is going to provide a standard of care that is superior to what can be done sort of either through family or through yourself. Can I back up on something in the study? Do we know how the kids who were just in the high-quality programs did? No. The study is a little bit of an odd identification strategy. It looks at the entire cohort of kids in Quebec and compares it to the entire cohort of kids elsewhere. So it even has kids who weren't in the daycare program at all. Let me pretend that what you had said was yes, and they did much better. Yes. So what I was going to say, if that was the answer... Is it something I think this kind of study speaks when you see a lot of policies? Is it like there is an odd logic to universality? One way the, the government is very different than the private sector is in the way it rolls things out. Mm-hmm. And it, it would be very hard to say, to, to structure legislation and say, we're going to do universal pre K and it will start in Southeast Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. <laughs> And we will try to get it right. And then, like, it'll go to Southwest and, you know, sort of on and on down the line until you get 
it national or like, you know, with Obamacare, you had a healthcare.gov like collapse buckle like immediately and right. you know when when i talk to software designers then like what the hell were they doing rolling it out to everybody that's not how you roll out software where it right. has like you think of like anything like a business would, would try out opening you know their mom and pop store and, and then like roll out elsewhere and, and it just it isn't works. a great strategy for quality to mm -hmm. to have to do that kind of thing i mean right now like we are scaling vox we are hiring a bunch of people uh, if you think you're the kind of person <laughs> vox should hire we have our jobs at voxmedia.com that was pretty smooth yeah right but we are not hiring <laughs> 50,000 people. We're hiring like, you know, 10 or 15. And it's really difficult. Like, it's really difficult to do it in the way that you want to. So you build the organization you want to build. And we do not have any kind of, to my knowledge, serious model in government where we say, OK, we are going to have this benefit for this class of people, be it everybody who lives in Ontario, everybody who makes less than a certain amount of money or everybody who has a child or whatever it might be. But we are going to roll it out in a slow measured way so that like we can see what works and like that the rollout is going to be a 10 year rollout that has this huge equity problem but it might lead to higher quality services that we understand better but there just doesn't seem well, to be what a I way think to is sad it. is that yeah. they were potentially close to getting this right here which was that they could have said because they always had this intention to grow the high quality sector and sort of squeeze out the rest of it and if they had said from day one Look, this money is available, but it's only available to programs that meet these standards. Right. Then what they would have had was the same expansion in the number of high-quality program slots, which was significant. And you potentially would have had an even bigger expansion because people would have wanted to sort of exploit that business opportunity. But you would have had, particularly in the initial years, very long waiting lists. And you would have had to be willing to say to people okay, in year one, this is going to be a benefit for X number of people. And the speed with which the benefit expands is going to be tied to providers' ability to find qualified staff and hire them in real regulated facilities. But they could have done it. I mean, they have shown a growth in the number of high-quality providers. So it's not impossible to do the scaling. It's just that for political reasons, I think they had the moment of opportunity and they wanted to kind of go all in with the well, program. Well, and as we discussed in our first segment on single payer, I speak on behalf of my people, <laughs> that Canadians are very into like equal waiting lines. And I think like at least the politics of doing like this unequal, some people get access to it, some people don't. Probably, I'd imagine, more big yeah. challenge, and that's how you end up with the system you end up with. Well, so there's an interesting, an actual white paper from Center for American Progress <laughs> to do a daycare subsidy. And it has a somewhat, it's much more means-tested than this Canadian program, but they're looking really at subsidy for, for low-income people. But they say there's this uh, sort of multi-star rating system, and their idea is that the subsidy is only available if you go to the three-star sort of high-end program. And their goal is to expand the number of people in there. But then they have this kind of, it's like a side box or a footnote somewhere where they say, well, during a transition period, you know, we're going to let people use the money in lower quality programs. And I think that's probably not a fanatical commitment of the people who wrote that paper. And I would urge them to think, is that really the way you want to roll it out? Once you start providing the subsidy to the low-quality providers, I think you're going to find it's very difficult to take it away. Whereas it's hard to say, well, we're rolling this out, but it helps almost nobody. But it 
could be better. I mean, you see this a lot. Like there was uh, something around Obamacare and Medicare Advantage. It had a similar mm-hmm. star rating issue and a similar like, oh, we're only going to reimburse this group that is this high quality. And then maybe we're going to let people slip for a bit. But I, I think, you know, to, to even add one more note of skepticism, the phrase high quality preschool is mm-hmm. doing a lot of work here. Yes. Right. We are assuming that when. They say they know how to measure that now. Well, they're measuring the inputs right. and assuming that it will exactly, have good but inputs. also that like, you know, you will have a lot of teaching to the test, particularly if you're measuring inputs. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the things about if you create a program that forces a massive expansion in the thing you define as high quality preschool, you will have a massive expansion in the thing you define as high quality preschool. But you just better be right <laughs> that like right. what you're getting is actually high quality preschool, not a set of like inputs that are correlates of high-quality preschool programs but are not actually what's driving them. So, I mean, right. And I think the alternative that is not that popular, it seems to me, among sort of wonky-type people is to say, well, if there's families we want to give financial assistance to, we should give them money, Mm -hmm. which they might spend on preschool programs, which they might or might not be able to judge the quality of, but they also might determine that they need something else. You know, there's a question of, how confident are we that the sort of policymaking apparatus going from the experts to the legislators to the regulators to the implementation really knows better than low-income families what it is that they need? I mean, do they need a $500 a month preschool benefit or do they need $500? It seems to me that we don't have that many striking success stories of this kind of paternalistic quality judgment proving to be way better than people's individual choice. Someday on the weeds, we are going to have to talk about universal basic incomes. Yeah, we are. You I would talk you, about it. it. We're going to, we're going to, Dylan's going to be in Dylan's that chair gonna for that to, one. Yeah. yeah if you're, if kicked, you can't get I more exciting about out. UBIs, yeah. UBIs are exciting. No, I think they're very exciting. This is great. I enjoyed this discussion. Well, it's sad. I don't well, want to say it's great. Everything we I'm talked about was terrible. I'm right now. I'm I enjoyed talking about it. I enjoyed it. talking about it. interesting questions. I just like, I don't know. Just, I'd be doing better if it was just like a neutral outcome. But Yeah, well, such it's, as it's hard to solve big problems. Yeah. I don't know. After this podcast, I'm going to go uh, see my baby and uh, try to take care of him well, I guess. Good luck. I yeah, hope you're a high-quality parent. That's a, human, that's a good human scale problem to try to solve. Okay. Um, do we want to do uh, a self-criticism session? We did one last week. Yeah. I feel like Marxian self Marxist self criticism is a good is a good feature for this podcast. I enjoyed. Uh, um, everybody should go review us on iTunes. But I really enjoyed the person who went and reviewed us and was like, "I had a criticism of this podcast," and then unexpectedly, they all said they agreed with me about it at the end of the show <laughs> last time. So what did we do wrong, Matt? I think it was flawless. This was a flawless <laughs> show. I think the only problem was that we lacked a sponsor. We need we need to get that money so we can keep making If you would like so, to sponsor the weeds, you can email us at weedsatbox.com. Yeah. What do you think we did? Sarah with? Clef? Oh, gosh. What did we do wrong? I don't know. I guess I wasn't enthusiastic enough, but I promise I'm really working on it. <laughs> and I want to get some more, like, guests up in here, I think. Should right? we do guests? Like, I think we should have a guest Are soon. there really people who should... So I'm going to do a special extra of the weeds where I am interviewing a individual. Will you give I'll, us a hint? Well, I'm concerned now that I'm going to hint at it and then something's going to happen It's going to fall through oh. and then people will be like, well why, well, why didn't you ever release that interview? But I'm planning to release an interview through this podcast channel very soon. Now we know who actually listens to the podcast because they're going to be the only ones who know about yeah, this. Yeah, the only one who know if I totally fail and nothing comes out the yes. other end of that. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. 
But I think we did better this time at getting into the weeds. And I like that we talked about less news-pegged things. Yeah. And I'd be curious to know what listeners want us to talk about. I would be curious next. to know what listeners want. Um, I felt like this was the first time we tried to actually prepare our intros to sections. Yeah. And I felt that maybe we should almost prepare them less. Like, I felt like reading my gun control stats and maybe I was taking a long time uh, without, like, fun talk between us. But maybe that's wrong. People can tell us what they think about our interests. Yes, that is why we have the email. Yeah. We need also suggestions for new topics. Yes. Yeah. But I think we need to work on our transitions also. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Our transitions are pretty awkward. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty weak. And, you know, you got to know when is enough enough. Yeah. I think it's enough. We have an outro, though, so it isn't quite enough. Oh, yeah. This has been The Weeds. (laughs) (laughs) This is great. We can cut that. No, no, no. We're going to keep that in. Try again. This has been The Weeds from Panoply and Vox.com. I'm Matthew Iglesias with Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Thanks to our producers, AC Valdez, Laura Mayer, and Jocelyn Frank. And thanks to you for listening. And for reviewing us on iTunes. Bye.